Good afternoon. Thank you for tuning in and joining us for the Evangel Life broadcast or discussion or whatever this is. I'm here with Dan and Kevin, and uh, we're going to hopefully get to some of your questions. Uh, I think that, Kevin, you've got some questions right off the bat that we're going to jump into. Yes, sir. And um, let's get into it. All right. Okay, so this first question is, I recently had someone ask me, if heaven is a perfect place in word, deed, and thought, how did Satan decide to rebel against God, and what prevents other angels from doing so? I thought maybe y'all could shed some light for me on how to answer. Thank you so much. You want to take a stab at that? Well, I might uh, just start simply to say that I think the angels are created beings, uh, just as man is a created being, and that the world that man was placed in was also created perfect. Uh, but it was created with the possibility of failure. If we understand God to be love in his nature, and love is not something that can be forced, it's not something that can be shared with a robot who is predetermined, then we have to understand that uh, his creatures have the possibility of choice. So I think the same thing that was true of people was true of angels. They were created by God, and they had the possibility of failure, which they did. I think the outcome of their failure is notably different because Lucifer's fall was done with a level of knowledge not accessible to humans. Um, so I think there is the possibility of redemption uh, with human beings because of their ignorance, uh, whereas angels with a greater um, understanding are not redeemable. And we would note that those fallen angels are not in heaven, that their, their fall was by nature a departure from heaven. So um, I would also say that human beings are only going to be in heaven if they have overcome the fall mm -hmm. through the cross, through repentance, through the victory over everything that would take them out of heaven. So I find it impossible to contemplate that human beings would make it to heaven and afterwards fall. I think that our journey to heaven, we start in a fallen state and we, we journey to that perfected state and God will be all in all. So I find it completely impossible that heaven as we will experience it will be a realm where such things could occur. And uh, I think that whether we're speculating about angels or not at that point, uh, we, we might be uh, crossing a line, as Paul said, in discussion of angels and things about which we know not. <laughs> we were warned not to get too far into yeah. it, aren't we? That's for good reason. Yeah, I think this is another one of those super space fields, but, but you also have to consider that um, our stay in heaven is depicted as being outside the dimension of time. Yes, amen. So in terms of whether we would we would be capable of falling after we make it to heaven, it's like those determinations have already been made yes. at, at that point, and yes. we've entered into a realm where there's not a before and an after. There is an all in all uh, no shared, shared with God. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, so time that's is a dimension that was created by God that I think uh, angels and men operate within right. um, until we depart from that realm again. Amen. But, yeah, that even expands it a little bit. <laughs> Amen. Well, I hope that's helpful. It's fun to even think about. It's, it's uh, thought-provoking to think about these things. It is. You know, there's some discussion about whether 
and I've never sprung this on you, but it seems good to do so now. Um, <laughs> but there's some discussion about whether the devil fell before or after the Garden of Eden. And uh, obviously, those who, who would assume that he fell in the Garden of Eden or at the Garden of Eden, um, they would look to passages uh, in Ezekiel where it says, when it's speaking of the devil, and it says, you were in the Garden of God, you were the cherubim, so you were among the trees of the garden, mm -hmm. and it almost makes the tree of knowledge the devil himself. And um, But then there are others who would point out that um, this idea of, of th th there is a principle at work in Scripture from beginning to end that what is created on earth is in some sense or into in great sense a reflection of spiritual realities in heaven and so they would say that while those aspects in eden were representative of the devil that there was there is a garden of god that stands outside of time and that describes heaven and that we see that even in revelation where the tree of life in the midst of the garden of God mm -hmm. does not refer to an Eden on earth, but it refers to the paradise, the Eden in heaven. And again, we're perhaps crossing into lines where the Bible is not abundantly clear, but personally, my understanding of the whole narrative and purpose for the creation of man, for the, the story and narrative of the garden, my, I'm inclined to see it that the devil fell prior to man's fall, prior to man's uh, demise in, in the garden, and that even prior to man's creation, the devil had already fall, fallen. And that part of the overarching meta-narrative for, for the earth and for man's existence is to settle the conflict between a power in the heavens that relies on envy and pride and violence and fear versus the most high power that relies on love and and goodness and holiness and life and i think that man is in the in the pauline epistles the church and, and mankind is a pivotal player in this cosmic struggle and we see that same dynamic in the oldest book of the Bible, mm -hmm. in the book of Job. Uh, we see this tension where God is relying on humanity to prove something to the devil. That in this case, he only has one servant, one man in all the earth who can do it. And it seems like Job comes through despite his faults. He does prove triumphant. And ultimately, Jesus is, is, is the second Adam. But even the idea of a second Adam coming to destroy the works of the devil suggests that the first Adam had a mission that he ultimately disappointed, that he failed. Uh, but I don't know. Have you ever... Well, I have never really studied the question. Um, it's an interesting question, and, and maybe a question in return would be, what difference exactly does it make to us? Um, but uh, 
I mean, I certainly would think that it'd be hard to defend a position that puts the devil falling after the fall of man because right. he's already operating in his obviously negative role right. at the fall. Right. Whether he fell before the creation of man is another question, and, and I guess the reason we're discussing it is because the Bible doesn't really say. Right. Um, we're not even really told when the angels were created right. in terms of the timeline, although they are equated with stars right, right in, in the there. Bible over and over again. In the so, creation narrative. So you would think that in the creation narrative where the stars are mentioned, it, it's probably re referring to the, the heaven, they're in the heavenly host, right. so to speak. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but where does their, where does Satan's fall come? Right. I'm, I'm not sure we're really told, but it is an interesting thought to contemplate given the narrative in the book of Job and, and right. Isaiah and Ezekiel, some of the other places, was man even created in a sense as an answer as part of yeah as part of god's um demonstration and to uh, your point i don't think that it really matters because in the mind of god who knew the end from the beginning he would have known of the devil's fall and he would have known the answer that already needed to be in place so it doesn't sure. really affect how we view our mission as human beings made in the image of god and what our our duty is to demonstrate to principalities and powers. Mm -hmm. But it is interesting to contemplate. And, and there, there, there are some verses there in, 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 in Genesis that make it seem like the angels of God are created right there. Um, but again, that assumes that they're created in the time-bound existence. And that, that also is hard for me to understand mm -hmm. if they are eternal beings and so on and so forth. So I don't know that it's... it's mm -hmm. It's terribly pivotal, but at least it is an interesting, um, one of those mental... Well, it makes you start thinking again about the emphasis of our role yeah. and what God has staked upon us, even as fallen creatures, yeah. that we, we have the capacity to, like Job did, yeah. to, to affirm his ultimate power. Yeah. Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him in all the earth. <laughs> that's, not a, that's not a great statement. But at least Job, Job was faithful. It's a prototype of the Messiah. Amen. Well, anyway, so we added our own question, our own curveball. Right, okay. When right. do we get to start asking Kevin questions? Oh, well, you know. <laughs> Let's do it. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure this is entirely fair. <laughs> so if you do start asking me questions, though, can y'all come up with them? Because you know what I can handle, they know. Okay, so, amen. okay uh, good afternoon. Thank you for the broadcast. I look forward to it every Saturday. I would like to ask about roles that women have in the church today and the activities or positions they are allowed to participate in. I include some examples for women who had important roles in Old and New Testament. For example, Deborah. She was a judge and prophetess in the book of Judges known for her wisdom and leadership in Israel. Miriam. She was a prophetess and played a key role in the Exodus leading the Israelite women in song and dance. Priscilla, mentioned in the New Testament, she and her husband Aquila were early Christian leaders and mentors to Apollos. Thank you for providing insights on this topic. Amen. I guess in, in the broadest sense, we would say, Dan, that the problem with this topic in the church is that we often borrow the power paradigms of the world. Mm -hmm. I was talking to a minister this morning and we were marveling with, with some emotion <laughs> about how the authority of God truly is the most humbling thing that you can participate in. And that true godly authority 
really is, it's this soft, reducing, um, servant capacity. And so when we talk about empowerment, whether it's men or women, young or old, gifted or less gifted or seen or unseen, we don't believe in the power dynamics of the world. We believe in the power of the cross. And I think that whatever we believe the scripture has given regarding the fixed order of, of gender and, and such, we would say that that is not to disparage or limit someone's value before God or each other, but that is instead to create a design where harmony can, can exist. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's probably the framing that I would give. Just perhaps this is a tough issue in the church because the men don't understand what God has really called them to in leadership. And if they did, they would see it not as a power move, not as a as the politics of power, but of, of service and, and, and really dying. And Paul says, we are put to death for your sakes. And Jesus said, the greatest among you will be the least. Amen. You know, so there is, there is a, an inversion of the world's understanding, the natural understanding, you might say, of, of, of all of us, of what it means to have authority or to uh, exercise dominion, use scriptural terms, um, what that really means. And... Um, it's a confusion of two basic types of authority that have completely different motives, completely different uh, outcomes, completely different power paradigms, as you said, and the, the one being the authority of force um, that ultimately is only effective through fear, uh, and the other being the authority of love that is unique to God, unique to His design, and that is uh, uh, only effective by in situations where people will voluntarily submit to it and recognize its value. It can never really be imposed. You, you cannot, just like you cannot force someone to love, you know, you, you just cannot, you, you can't bring this authority to bear in someone's life. Um, as soon as you resort to the natural, um, we might say the, the sword of the flesh or whatever symbolism we'd use there, whenever you start to resort to that, you immediately are destroying the very basis of the authority you, you're supposed to have Amen. as a servant of God. The arm of the flesh. Yeah. Amen. And I think, uh, to your point about maybe men don't understand this, <laughs> I think one of the main things that is missing in the church today is that people look at the scriptures about uh, women submitting to men, uh, and they're pretty categorical, they're pretty pointed, they're, they're repeated often. Through, it's not just the Old Testament, it's perhaps most clearly portrayed in the New Testament, and that just, they really get tied up in knots about it, because they're situated uh, in a, an atomized, individualized um, church that is not so much a church at all as it is a, a gathering of people, perhaps, at certain times that get together in the same room or that know, they're acquainted with each other. Right. But they're not part of a fitly framed body in which everyone is in a place of submission. Amen. Everyone is occupying roles of servanthood. And Amen. so it's seen as an inequality right. because the women are submitting and the men are not. Right. Or at least not in the same way right. or, or whatever. And I think when the body is truly functioning, then we see that all of us yes. are called to submission. Yes. All of us are called to places where we exert dominion or authority. 
Right. The question is, who decides where we're submitting, where we exert authority. And as you said, exerting authority can be more humbling than submitting to it. Right. And there are plenty of men who would rather not have their role. Amen. (laughs) You're talking to one of them. Yes. (laughs) There there are things about it that are, that are, you know, you can, you can just start comparing yourself to others and say, well, that would be an easier role actually than the one that I seem to be saddled with. Right. And that, I think that's human nature at its core is that, you know, what about him, Lord? Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. Peter's immediate response when he's told about the cross that he's called to bear. And he's he's considered the the head of the church, if there was one at sure. the time. Yeah. You, you know, yeah. and, and he's like, um, maybe somebody else. Uh, is it, Am I the only guy that's going to have to do this? And, yeah. you know, that's what's inside of us is we, we're not sure that we got the... We think we got the short end of the stick no matter where we fall in that. Yeah. But when we're situated in the context of a culture with a different power paradigm and a church that's not really, uh, in, in too many cases, is not ordered according to design, right. then it seems like an inequality. Right. I don't believe it is an, an inequality, in, no. like you said, in terms of value or, or, or whatever. Right. It's simply God, God's way of helping us to come to harmony. Amen. Harmony is impossible. I, I always jump to my musical yeah, it's good. examples. Go for it. Harmony is impossible uh, when you only have one note. Yeah. There has to be different notes. Yeah. Some have to be at a higher frequency and some at a lower frequency, or there's no such thing as harmony. Mm-hmm. You get monotone, you get boredom, you get going nowhere. There has to be differentiation of parts and roles before there is music. Yeah. You'll have no, no harmony, you'll have no melody. Yeah. You know, so you have nothing. You yeah. don't. You don't have art. Yeah. Without the same principles being applied, that they, they call it the principle of dominance in art, and that right. sounds like a bad word when you start talking about relationships <laughs> in right. modern um, vocabulary. But it, there's the principle of dominance in art, where if if you if you don't have something around which your your uh, the the eye can follow, and your your painting or your whatever it is your drawing can orient where there is balance and there is proportion of parts right. that are different from each other, then you simply have boredom. Yeah. You, you, you have a it's monotonous, static. yeah, static. There's no motion. There's no fluidity. There's yeah. no, there's no beauty. Yeah. And I mean, creation is the same way, right. whether, whether we're talking about galaxies or we're talking about cells yes. in, on the microscopic level, where we're talking about atoms. Yes. We're looking at things that have disproportionate parts. And that is actually what creates the possibility of, of order, the possibility of life, the possibility of beauty. Amen. None of that is possible when everything is the same. Amen. I, I, I read recently that a, um, a science teacher, a high school science teacher, was complaining against the secular science curriculum uh, taught in the public schools because she said it was sexist because it showed hierarchy across the entire spectrum all the way down to the mitochondrial configuration of a cell. And she said this, this teaches uh, hierarchy and sexism, therefore, to students because they're, they're taught to believe that even the mitochondria is, is, is an essential hierarchy for the proper functioning of each cell. And she said, but this isn't true. She said, nature has a beautiful example of no hierarchy, and that is found in bacteria. Wow, that's beautiful. So if you want society to, um, to resemble a pathogen, then get rid of hierarchy. You know, I guess 
looking at what at Paul's letters, you would see that there are there are two statements, and one side uses these statements against each other. But one statement, Paul says, in Christ there is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. And I think that this is often misunderstood because it is a value statement, but it is not a statement about the orchestration or ordering of the gifts in the body. And when we see him doing that, we see him unapologetically giving an order. He says things like first apostles, second prophets, and so on. So Paul is not encouraging this symmetry that creates stasis, mm -hmm. that makes everything inert and static. Instead, he is speaking of value. And I think that we have to look at how he's grouping these things. When he says neither Jew nor Greek, we, we get an understanding that this is, he is abolishing the value system that said some people are more precious in God's eyes than others. And mm -hmm. this is not true. Christ died for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. So then on the other side, you see Paul saying things like, I do not permit a woman to speak in church, nor to teach men or usurp authority over men. And what is, what is so relevant about this is that Paul does not use as his basis for this pattern some situation that was exploding in a particular culture of his day. And I believe dishonest interpreters try to do that. They say, oh, this is a particular problem that was at Corinth. And oh, it was also particularly at Ephesus. And it was also at the church where Timothy was at. And, and uh, Peter was facing the same particular problem. And it's dishonest. It, it's just dishonest. Paul does not tie this overarching principle to a, to a situational crisis in time. Instead, he ties it to the creation of the world. Mm -hmm. And he ties it to the fact that man was created first and woman second. This is even before the fall. This is before there was any sin. He said God, he's showing that God had an order that stands outside of the situation at Corinth or the situation here in the United States. And then he, he does go on and he says he ties it to the law, to what was spoken in the law, agreeing with that. And he also ties it to the fall of man. But these three things that he connects to are not circumstantial, culturally derived crises at Corinth that explain why Paul imposed this situational exception that otherwise he contradicts. And he shows that it is the way God created us that dictates a certain order in our arrangement. So the question, when, when people talk about, you know, the role that women have in, in the church, I would say the first role that all of us have is to be a child of God. Mm -hmm. And that's the role that we're going to, that's the only role that we're going to keep all the way to heaven. Mm -hmm. In a sense, every other function is temporary. Which is what he's really saying when he says that all authority and all dominion and all power, all of this is going to cease. First Corinthians 15. Yeah. It's gonna, he's going to put an end to it when we get to heaven. There's not going to be any submission. There's not going to be husbands over wives or elders over disciples. This is really just for this sin-tainted 
season on earth. Where By the we're way, that's, the fall. that's my wife's least favorite scripture in the whole Bible, where Jesus says that there should be no marrying in heaven, be no <laughs> marriage in heaven. She is convinced that we're still going to have a special relationship in heaven. And uh, anyway, that, that's probably a little off topic. But. That's good. Okay. Well, I've, I've heard of favorite scriptures. Now I know of least favorite ones. <laughs> Amen. So... We look at, at situations like we're offered there, and those were not all equal situations. So we believe that the New Testament gives us multiple examples of women filling places of ministry in the church. We don't see that as women filling offices of ministry over men in the church. So we are able to harmonize uh, a woman with a gift of prophecy. Philip had three daughters and they prophesied, or was it four? Four. Uh, four daughters and they prophesied. We have Priscilla included with Aquila, although it's a little bit of an argument from silence because if I met somebody and corrected them and my, I was with my wife, then they could say, Ossie and Rebecca met Tom and, you know, and gave him the more excellent way. And it wouldn't entail that my wife brought the preponderance of teaching, but I, I'll grant it. It doesn't mean... That yeah. it's contradicting Paul's injunction against a woman exerting authority over a man or teaching him. Exactly, and it, and it even is maybe significant that it it says when they encountered Apollos, uh, they took him aside. Mm. So even that, in terms of a a, a a public exertion of a of a leading or teaching function of a woman, um, it, it we we have a lot of grounds to believe it was a a private context in which they were discussing with him. And Paul does call them, he names them both yes. in another place and says that they're co-workers with him. Amen. But it, it still begs the question of what kind of co-worker? Right. Uh, there are a lot of people, a lot of gifts. Paul himself delineates all kinds of gifts that people operate in, and they're, and they're all co-workers. So, so let's talk about the difference between an office of ministry and a situational function in ministry. Um, seems to us that the way we interpret the requirement to have your head covered is a requirement to be under your husband. That's what Paul is really saying. If you look at that closely, it's kind of the only way you can make sense of the whole piece there. Um, so, And it is what he's referring to, to your earlier point, when he says, uh, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other custom, nor do any of the churches of God. Amen. 1 Corinthians 11. Yeah. So it's kind of a universal pattern that, yes. <laughs> that he's imposing there. Um, so we would say that um, what we see with Miriam, she has a gift of prophecy, but there's a difference between submitting a prophecy situationally and assuming a role as a constitutional prophet over the church. Uh, that's rare that, to see even men do that, but it, it seems Im implausible in Paul's New Testament configuration for women to take that place. Um, but that does not preclude a word from God, a prophecy. It doesn't preclude operating in the gifts of the Spirit, gifts of healing, words of knowledge, gifts of help, of hospitality. There's tons of ministry that we see in, in my own mother, uh, my sister, your wife, Amanda. Uh, they operate in those, those gifts often with a prophetic anointing or declaration in the church, um, but it's under the covering of constituted offices of ministry, and specifically their husband or the, or the brother covering them in the Lord. I think it's notable that the same exceptions are 
always raised. It's Deborah, you know, uh, or Miriam. Right. Why? Because, well, because there's hundreds and hundreds of examples of men, and then there's these ex- things that appear to be exceptional. And in Deborah's case, it's pretty obvious by the context right. that they can't get any men to lead. Yeah. She tries to get Barack to step forward, and he won't do it unless he can be holding her apron strings. Right. And she says, well, then the glory's going to go to a woman. And, yeah. you know, and then in her song later, she says that about that how she rejoiced when the when the princes would lead yeah. in, in Israel. Yeah. So it seems to be rather exceptional because right. no one is stepping up. And, and we're not denying um, the possibility that God has moved and, and might yet move through yes. women in, in some exceptional way For in a sure. place where, where no men were, were stepping up. Um, but to but try even, to... Yeah, even that would be situational. Yes. By nature of it being exceptional. Yes. And it's not a pattern for the churches of God. Exactly. And to try to take those exceptions and say, well, here, can't we carve out a little room for me to do this or for so-and-so to do that? Right. Is to, you better start by admitting that something is terribly wrong. Yeah. If you're going to, if you're going to use Deborah as an exception. And, and maybe there's be people who'd be happy to do that and say, yeah, that's what I'm saying. And I'm here to fix it, you know? Yeah. But and we've it, seen that. We've seen that. We've seen women who stepped into roles of ministry and really did fill a gap when there were no men willing to take the place. And, yeah. and I have I have respect for that. Although in some cases, we also see that terrible imbalance came into the church. I'm thinking of an example mm-hmm. there from Germany. Terrible imbalance came into the church, though it was the best, it was guided by the best of intentions. It still was not, it did not, it was not, God had not given the gifts to fill the role that was being filled there. And with Miriam, it's it's that's a pretty big stretch. I mean, right. she is called a prophetess. The first time she's mentioned that I'm aware of is, you know, we think of her when she uh, leads the singing right. and the dancing after they. But it says there <clears throat> that she led the women into uh, singing and dancing and celebrating when they crossed the Red Sea. Right. Um, I think it's mentioned in Micah right. that you were led by Moses and Aaron and Miriam. I think she yes. is mentioned there. Yes. But again, in what way do we do we lead? We have no problem with a with a woman being a song leader. No, um, that's that's akin to prophetic giftings and so forth. And yes. that's a leader. That's right. a leader in the church. When a woman leads a song, right. that's a leader. So we see Miriam operating in that in that kind of function. But the other thing that Miriam is known for, incidentally, is the point in time where suddenly she and Aaron decide that. Um, that there shouldn't be distinctions in their place and in the order of God that has been set up, and that um, they ought to have the same role as Moses. And it, you can read that in the Bible, but God doesn't think too highly of their rearrangement of, Proposal. His, of his order. <laughs> yeah. and, and what we do see in terms of her specifically leading women, in terms of her singing and dancing and leading worship, we believe that that all accords with the patterns given by Paul, which he tied both to the law, to the creation of man, and to the fall of man. Those are the three things that he anchored his teaching in. It was not situational crises in that particular culture. That's just a a lie that's been glued on after the fact. But we would see that all of those behaviors of Miriam are in keeping with a woman's role in ministry. We would see that the, the behavior of Deborah was blessed of God, but it is at best exceptional because she tells him that he's supposed to do it. He won't do it. 
So they all know that this is not ideal. This is less than ideal. Um, but she fills a role that the others are unwilling to fill. And I think that God blessed it, but it was also a season in Israel's history where there was no real leadership. It was during the season of the judges. And this is a time where it was, just, it was said that each one was doing right in his own eyes. You, if you're going to take that season of Israel's history as a paradigm for everything else, then look at the story of Micah. And there are some highly problematic situations unfolding. Yeah. Uh, you'd have to look at the judge Samson and say that he is somehow a model of virtue. If you're going to look at that generally and say whatever God was using or tolerating is somehow a paradigm for New Testament mm -hmm. behavior. You know, a, a good principle of Scripture is that you must interpret the obscure passages through the unequivocal passages. Yes. We don't interpret the unequivocal passages through our version of the obscure passages. We have to start with what we do know and stand firmly on the two legs of what Paul is unequivocally stating. And then we have to say, how do we harmonize this with some of these other things that, that seem to be exceptions? Yep. And so I guess in short, we're saying a woman's ministry can be real and fruitful, but it's by nature a situational leading of the Spirit that's done under the covering of her husband, and that that situationalness can extend to women like Deborah. But that's not a pattern, and it's even something that Paul explicitly discourages, ex explicitly prevents. I do not permit a woman to teach or usurp authority over men. And you already mentioned this, but we also don't see the ditch on the other side of the road as scriptural, right? where people are forbidding women from saying anything in church, right? which usually translates into when you're having a church meeting, right. the women can't say anything. Right. That just seems contradictory from, from a lot of angles. Exactly. Um, Philip's daughters who prophesy, for example, where are they prophesying? Right. I mean, people have even gone to the extreme of saying, well, if a woman feels a prophecy, she has to go outside. <laughs> as if the church is a building or as if the church is really a, 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 a designated time on Sundays. Right. And, and I know Paul does uh, specifically address corporate gatherings and so right. on and so forth, but he actually says that is where prophecy right. is important, right. is in the corporate gathering. Right. So, so to take those examples of... Uh, prophecy and, and to say they're somehow done outside of the church seems crazy. Now we really are forcing a contradiction yeah. because you have Anna in the temple who was called a prophetess and you do have Miriam. So mm -hmm. that's more of a pattern, whereas Deborah is certainly an exception. And, and now we're forcing a contradiction that doesn't seem to align with Scripture. Um, you know, I think that a good, a good thing to, to, to ponder is just what Paul meant when he said, in the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's highly unlikely that he was meaning in the church building. There's at least a, a consistent argument to be made that the use of ecclesia can refer to the congregation, but it can also refer to the authority that represents the congregation. So when he says, take it before the church, sometimes he's saying, take it before the whole congregation. Other times, we see in Scripture that they take it before the church, and it's the authority of the church. So we would say that we we would say that it's quite possible that when Paul says in church, he's saying 
in the decision-making capacity of authority that settles disputes. And, and that's even the context where he says it. You know, if there's a dispute, if she disagrees or if she does not, that's where let's just resolve this at home quietly and come back together and represent ourselves as families and not as individuals, husbands against wives and so on and so forth. If I'm remembering the passage correctly, too, that would be consonant with where he says um, that he has appointed these in the church, mm-hmm. first apostles, yes. second prophets, third yes. teachers. yes. It's the same language yes. in the church. Right. And he's not talking about um, these are the guys that you need to have a meeting. Right. He's saying he's referring to the governmental That's key. Uh, That's key. aspect of the church. Yeah. And so the, the term can stand for like the Senate or the, the body yeah. of decision-making authority. Yep. Amen. So let's make sure we have the right paradigm. Let's understand that whatever restricts uh, roles in the church does not govern the value each of us have before God. Let's understand that all of our gifts are ultimately temporary because we're going to end this world and leave it as we came in naked and a child in the arms of God. Amen. And let's understand that whatever order has been given was not given culturally. It was not given because of some situational crisis. It was anchored in the creation of man, the fall of man, and the law of God. And so these things, this is a pattern for all people, and it's to bring harmony. It's to bring that sense of design that allows each one to do what he was called and gifted by God to do best. And on that first principle, uh, to again just emphasize, we're all called to places where we, we fit within a design, where we are submitting to some Amen. And we are, whether that be to a particular gifting or whatever, some gifts have, what that's what he's saying, even in, in terms of, I, I appoint these in the church, first apostles, second prophets. What is he saying there if it isn't a hierarchical, that's a bad word, but sure. a hierarchical ordering linear. Of, of linear ordering of gifts in the church? Yeah. That's what he's saying there. And so, uh, you know, all of those places are going to be submitting in some areas uh, to other ministries in the body. Amen. And again, it's a question of, where do these gifts come from? Where do these givens come from? And we're living in a world where, you know, I mean, I could say, um, and this would have been taken as a truism uh, not so long ago, but I could say, God has not given me the capacity to bear a child. And I could get upset by that because that's really what I wanted to be in my life. Um, but it wasn't given to me. Right. I, that's not my role. Right. Uh, and it was God who decided that. Not my parents, not right. not not me, not right. anybody. That right. was a given in my life, but we live in a world now where the idea that anything yeah. is a given from God that has to be submitted to is just anathema. Yeah. And so I should be allowed to have a baby, yeah. and I can try to manipulate the world to make that happen. Um, but it's it's in a sense that's you're having to do the same thing to the Word of God, to the Scriptures, to try to create an exception. Uh, on topics like the one we're on here, mm-hmm. uh, you're having to really manipulate mm-hmm. the givens and force something that, in the end, doesn't fit. Doesn't fit well. Yeah, it's got all kinds of uh, liabilities that yeah. go with it, shall we say? You know, I I was I wish I was born with the gift to sing, but I I wasn't. I mean, I can sing along, but I wasn't born with that gift. And it's it's really what Paul is saying in Romans nine when he says, the potter cannot boast, the, the clay cannot boast against the potter. 
and yep. say, why have you done this? There are givens and the givens that he put, puts forth between genders are tied to how we were born, how God created us. They are not situational. They are not culturally derived. They're givens in our very DNA. Well, I wish I was born with the gift to even sing along, but I do it anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Some have the gift of the joyful noise. Amen. Amen. Is there anyone in the church, man or woman, that is not in submission at the type of the hierarchy? No, absolutely not. I believe that the all of you submit to one another. Absolutely. I believe that the 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 more authority we bear, the more submission has to be in our life, and the more it has to be visible that that this. This is, we're in submission. And I believe we should only get to places of constituted authority through the highest level of submission and discipleship. Good afternoon, and thank you for answering questions on the broadcast. I don't know how else to ask this, but I am curious if the gift of speaking in tongues is a prerequisite for being a member of your church. Can you help me understand this in terms of scripture? So the first thing I would say is that there is likely a confusion between the gift of tongues and the gift of the Spirit with the evidence or sign of tongues. And a lot of people confuse these things, but they are not the same thing. So first of all, the gift of tongues is a kind of prophetic utterance where God takes a prophecy and he adds a second witness to it because of unbelief among believers, so to speak, in the church. And, and so it is, it's, not, it's not something that we expect on a, on a regular basis. It's something that the Lord uses situationally, and it's a kind of prophecy, and not everybody has it. That's the gift of tongues. Now, completely separate from that is the gift of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of glossolalia, speaking in unknown tongues. This is for personal edification, and this is the sound that occurs when the wind blows and you don't know where it is coming from or where it is going, but you hear it. And this is what was happening at Pentecost. This is what was happening at Cornelius's house, this is what was happening in Acts, in Acts 19, and so on and so forth. So let's just separate those two things. Everybody has faith, not everybody has the gift of faith. Everybody has the testimony of Jesus, not everybody is called to be an evangelist. Everybody's supposed to be a witness, not everybody's supposed to be a preacher. Everybody, every believer, is supposed to experience the full overwhelming of their being by the presence of God with the beautiful sign and experience of speaking in tongues, and not every believer has the gift of tongues. So that's just what we would say there. In terms of being a member of our church, um, no, that's not a construct that we would agree to or, or teach. We believe that God's promise to all people is to be born again of water and spirit. And we believe that that should be the ambition and, 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 and aim of every believer. And it certainly is of those who are going to be part of this ministry. And some are coming to us and they're and they becoming part of us before receiving that 
full expression of rebirth, and some are receiving that first and then coming to us. But we do believe that that is a promise that is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, even as many as the Lord our God will call. But no, we don't have a membership construct that checks whether you've spoken in tongues and rejects people if they haven't. We have a belief that this promise is for you, and we believe it will so completely transform your life and bring the grace and blessing of God into your experience that everybody should want it and does want it that is on this journey with us. So, Really, in terms of membership in our church, it would really more be a line of whether or not we shared the belief in the infilling of the Holy Spirit Absolutely. and whether the, the faith was there and the, the ongoing walk into the truth and the light and the desire to receive it and, and so forth, that would be the difference. If we had somebody who was saying, well, uh, I reject uh, birth in the Spirit as evidenced by speaking in tongues, I reject that, I, I believe differently, but can I still be a member? Then our problem would not have to do with speaking in tongues. Our problem would have to do with our lack of unity in our faith and right. in our understanding. Right. And this is so fundamental. Uh, we believe it is what Jesus is speaking about when he yes. says you must be born again yes. to, to enter the kingdom, yes. that we would have to back up uh, and not, not reject someone. We could right. say, well, let's talk about this. Let's pray about this. Let's get into the Word together. Let's, let's bring some teaching to bear on this and, and see what you feel. <laughs> but we would have to get that sorted out. Yes. But we certainly have circumstances where that experience hasn't happened to someone yet, sure. and we're not forbidding them from associating with us or even coming into membership through water baptism. Right. Um, as long as they're full of faith and and uh, determination that they're going to come all the way in, Amen. because it's not us who who speak of being born of the Spirit as being prerequisite. Uh, prerequisite. It's it's the Bible. But Paul, Jesus said, it, and then Paul also says, we're baptized by one Spirit into one body. Amen. So it is that twofold birth of water and Spirit that brings us into the kingdom of God, Amen. which is synonymous with the body of Christ. Amen. So it's not a membership card. You can't be part except through the Spirit. So yeah. It's not that we won't let you be part. You can't get it. You're not there. <laughs> so amen. amen. How does one reconcile the evidence of some truth and working of the Spirit in our current setting and the fuller truth and evidence of the Holy Spirit working in power in what God is showing us through your teaching? But to move on from our setting would be seen by our brethren as forsaking the truth that they have and would be an end to our relationship. P.S. We belong to a conservative Mennonite church that believes we are the one true church. Hmm. Well, again, if you are a Mennonite, then you are an Anabaptist, and as such, you are a restorationist, or you should be. And what that means is that we acknowledge as believers that the church has not been living in the New Testament pattern, that it went into great darkness, and that that journey out of darkness began with those first steps of Reformation and specifically restoration in the Swiss brethren giving their lives to God and establishing the believer's baptism. But we cannot, we cannot take a couple steps out as a people and say this is far enough. We have to know a tree by its fruit, and we have to praise God for the truths that have been revealed through the Mennonite church, through Menno Simons. We stand on revelations that came through him of what the scripture really meant. As a, as a fellowship, we honor his teachings on so many fronts ourselves. And 
And yet, so we would not be able to stand where we do apart from him. And yet, if we don't continue this journey all the way back to Zion, then we betray what he gave his life for. You think of the, 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 the quote there in Hebrews 11, where it says, speaking of the heroes of faith and, and, the, and the faithful generations before, it says, these all died in faith, not having received what was promised, but having seen it afar, they welcomed it so that they would not be made perfect apart from us. So we have this idea that what Abraham and Moses gave their lives to, it had to continue. It had to be perfected in the New Testament. And had they stopped and said, Moses and Abraham are far enough for us, they would have been like the Pharisees. But instead, Abraham and Moses were counting on the fact that generations were going to come. There will arise one like unto Moses. Him you shall heed, Moses said. And they were counting on the fact that God was going to send further light, greater revelation. And so we don't dishonor the past by going further. It's like if they paved a road you know, 100 or 98 miles uh, through the wilderness and brought it within two miles of Zion, I don't honor my ancestors who built that road by building a memorial on the end of it and building a little shrine to what they did. I honor them by finishing the last two miles and getting all the way back to Zion. And that's how they are perfected with us, your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents. If we will continue this return, if we will keep seeking the restoration of the church, then the Lord Jesus is going to return. The Bible says when the, at the restoration of all things that have been spoken of by the prophets. So we're not there yet. And anybody who is building a shrine and saying, this is as far as we're going to go, we're the true church and you can't go further, they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. If the Lord Jesus has not returned, then this church is not restored to what it's supposed to be. And if it hasn't restored, if it's not restored, how dare you prevent people from going all the way? Yes, these truths need to be tested. Yes, we need to know the fruit behind them. We need to know that they are consonant with Scripture. But we've got to continue this journey. And I ultimately would say that when, when Simeon held the baby Jesus, he said, he will be a sign to be spoken against, that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. He will be for the rising and falling of many in Israel. And, and as God starts to reveal the body of Christ on the earth, it's going to bring some difficult decisions all over the world when we start to see the true patterns probably emerging from many places simultaneously. Our hearts are going to be revealed. Were we in this all the way? Or did we want to build a tabernacle and stop at some mile marker along the way? <laughs> and I would just encourage you, it is better to obey God rather than man. As much as is possible, live at peace with all men. Don't offend people. But don't ever prize the acceptance of man or, a man, or man's institution above the acceptance of God. That is priority, and you will honor them best. You will honor the past best when you go all the way. They will be, you will be carrying them with you in your hearts, valorizing their faith and saying it meant something to me. How would you define legalism? I have heard it said that legalism is the forceful push on regulations and rules that are not biblical or going over the Word of God. 
However, does the word of God give the apostles to bind and loose regarding the level of conviction over their flock? Love not the world, neither the things of this world. Does that give a pastor authority to legislate a rule or standard that may not be spelled biblically, but is a thing in the world that may cause saints to fall away? <laughs> There's a lot of questions in that. <laughs> Let's start with the last part. Does that give the pastor the authority to legislate rules? <laughs> okay, we're going to have to make sure we're in the right paradigms here. You know, pastors are not supposed to be legislatures. That is a government paradigm of power. Um, but pastors are supposed to give us patterns that guide us in the way of life. And um, we can see precedent for this in Scripture when Paul tells the Thessalonians that they received from him how they ought to walk and please God. He is showing that as their pastor, they, re they received specific patterns for him regarding their relationship with the Lord and how they should walk and please God. We can see Paul giving patterns through Timothy regarding things like modesty, regarding uh, economy and how the money should be handled, regarding behaviors. So we can certainly borrow those from Paul. We also see examples where the church reached an impasse and they had to make specific patterns that did seem somewhat tailored to the time and the crisis at hand. In those instances, we see that the church was listening for the voice of the Spirit. So it was not a pastor using his authority as a pastor. It was a pastor, it was a bunch of pastors seeking the leading of the Spirit. So I would say that when it comes to uh, uh, giving guidelines to the church, one, it's not pastors who should do this. It's, it's the Spirit that should do this through the leadership of the church. And two, the leadership of the church should be working together with each other to keep imbalances from, from occurring. So then going back to the, the beginning question, you know, what is legalism? Well, I, I believe that one of Paul's best, most defining passages about legalism is in Colossians 2. He says that you are subjecting yourself again to do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. And he said, these to be sure have the appearance of godliness in self-made religion, but they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. So the reason he debunks legalism, the reason he rejects it, is not because it's too hard on the flesh. The reason he debunks it is because it is not lethal enough against the flesh. It is still allowing the flesh to glory. So that's, it's critical that we, that we rightly divide his reasoning, his motivation, and, and recognize that pastors who are making the argument it's too hard, that may be a valid argument, but that's not the specific argument that Paul is making in his epistles. He's saying it's not enough. It's not hard enough on the flesh. It doesn't really put to death the tyranny of human self-will against God. So... That's the first thing. I, I would say that legalism, I've said before that legalism tells you the least you have to do, and love inspires you to the most you can do. So I think that the, the, the greatest strongholds of legalism today are in the so-called free grace community. 
Whenever you're telling people all you have to do is, you're saying God's a harsh master and you can skate under the wire if you'll just do this. And that is not a construct that uh, works with love. When you, get, when you got married, you were in love. You, you wanted to know how your spouse, what your spouse liked about your appearance, your hairstyle, your dress, the food you ate, where you, where you traveled, the friends you hung out with. And it affected and changed your behavior from top to bottom. And it was love that totally transformed you. So I would say that when we love God, we desire to please him. We desire to do his will. With Paul, we are, quote, trying to learn what pleases the Lord. And when we're in this capacity, when we love him, we keep his commandments, Jesus said. And John said, this is how we know we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So obedience is the outworking of a true relationship of love with God. Whereas legalism is the way we treat the IRS. How much do I have to pay? Could I hire an accountant or a pastor to tell me that it doesn't have to be quite that much to save me 3%? You know, how, what is the least I have to give? If they say I can drive 70, I'm going to drive 74. If they say I, can, I, can, uh, I only have to pay 15%, that's, I'm not going to put in 15.1. I am going to put in 15% to the T because I, I don't like the imposition of this entity's will. Why do I abide by the law? Because I want to avoid interaction with the lawman. And why, do I, why does a legalist Christian abide by the law? Because he wants to avoid interaction with God. But why does a Christian give everything? Why does he conform his life not to the patterns of this world, but is transformed by the renewing of his mind? Because he loves the Lord. And if he loves him, he keeps his commandments. So I think it is a complete falsehood to equate obedience and holiness with legalism. Yes, externalism can be a sign of legalism. But in our day and age, the worst legalism is the legalism of the mind that says, all I have to do is think or do or say. It's not a relationship anymore. It's minimum requirement Christianity, and it's a fraud. <laughs> but when we're saying, God, you've changed my heart, you've changed my desire, You've turned my will and want from what I used to, to incline toward to your will, to your, to your heart. That's a completely different matter. So legalism, minimum requirement Christianity in whatever form it is. And, and I think that if you look at the legalism of Paul's day, they were trying to return to Judaism because quite honestly, it was, it was safe. Judaism was a, was a licensed religion under the Roman state, and Christianity was religio illicita. It was illicit, and the other was uh, licit. It was licensed. So they had, a, uh, they had a motivation to go back to circumcision because what they were doing was illegal. <laughs> and it wasn't just that Paul was trying to save them from a harder life. He was saying, you're going back to this externalism, but it's not really killing the flesh. Your flesh is still boasting. You're not really walking with the Lord anymore. So hopefully that's helpful about legalism. You know, I think one of the areas that people think of first in with the legalism question is dress. Yes. And uh, I just thought maybe this is a way you could put it, but I, I wanted to say uh, I will admit that if you take someone who is dressed mod modestly, conservatively, I will admit 
that that could be due to legalism if you will admit that it could be due to love. Amen. And so we really can't, Jesus said, don't judge by outward appearance. Amen. And we believe that. We believe that God is looking at the heart. Amen. And that's not a reason not to uh, display the contents of your heart on the outside. Jesus said, if you clean the, the inside of the dish, the outside will become clean also. As Amen. you said recently, he did not say clean the inside and don't worry about the outside, leave it a mess. He indicates that what is on the inside will show on the outside. Yeah. Yeah. So it is possible to have a, um, a, a beautiful, if we take that analogy, it's possible to have this whitewashed, beautiful outside yeah. and have a, a rotten interior, and that all of this is a front. It's all hypocrisy. It's, it's self-imposed religion and the whole thing that, that, that's just self-righteousness. Yeah. Um, or, or someone who's bound in fear. Yes. Um, but it's also possible to have the whitewashed, beautiful outside because the inside has been cleaned and we're trying to please our heavenly Amen. husband. And, and we feel like this is the best way that we can do that. Amen. This is the most obedience we can give because we, because we love our, our Lord. And with that equation, you would even say it's impossible to have a cleaned inside that does not reflect on the outside. Amen. Yeah. You cannot have... So you might have an outside that's clean and still self-righteous, but you will not have an inside that's clean that does not reflect on the outside. And we might make some allowance for it due to ignorance. And the journey. And the journey. But, but we do believe that it's going to result. Amen. That, that first comes the inside. So there may be a, a small period of time Amen. where the inside has gotten cleaned and, and we just haven't, that hasn't worked its way into the, all of the outside things yet, but it will. Amen. <laughs> Isn't it a sad commentary on Christianity when people find it hard to believe? They default to someone must be making you do that. Yeah. And they find it hard to believe that someone could actually be doing it from the heart. And you have to convince them, no. I mean, don't you know that we could actually want to live this way? That we could actually want to obey the scriptures and live according to righteousness and do what is pleasing to our Father? Like, no, there, there, there's no way. That's impossible. You know you don't have to do that. It's like, Okay, we're done. <laughs> In that sense, it makes you wonder about the heart of one who asked the question. Amen. And Amen. that's not a comment on whoever raised this question. I'm just saying sure. it can be a reflection of our own, own motives. We can't, we can't countenance the idea that someone would be doing such a thing for any other motive than we might be doing it, which is because we had to. Well, and I've just, I was speaking from my own experience, too. I mean, this, this has been really a question that has been asked of me so often. And, and I've had to fight to say, no, do you not believe that someone would actually want to live this way from the heart because they want to do what is pleasing unto their father, you know? And it's almost like a fight to convince someone that this could be true. And that's what I'm talking about when I say a sad commentary on the current state of Christianity, at least where I come from. But he says, whoever loves the world or the things of the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And such people are so in love with the world that the idea of being distinct or separate from the world is death to them. And they think, who would ever want that? Well, someone who's no longer in love with the world, Amen. but who's in love with the Father. Amen. Amen. That's it. Well, thank you all for tuning in and for all the questions. This was fun, I think. Hopefully it was fun for you. Hopefully it was informative. And uh, Lord willing, you'll see us next week. God bless you.